I'm just going to ask you uh, to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. So that's Luke chapter 23, and I'm going to read from verse 32. So that's Luke 23, reading from verse 32. We read that two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. There was a notice, a written notice above him, which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Let's just come and let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the the freedom that we have to worship in this country and that we can do so really still without any concern other than whether it's what we want to do. And we've been blessed as we've worshipped together in different ways over this Easter weekend. But Lord, we know that there are many people in the world today who cannot worship freely. There are many people who, every time they, they go out, there's an element of concern and uncertainty because of the the context in which they live. So, Father, today we want to pray for the people of Sri Lanka. We want to pray for these many people who tonight are mourning the loss of those that they loved. And, Lord, we pray for your church that you'll again help your church to stand strong in Christ. Lord, these are dark days and difficult days for the church of Christ. These are days of great testing. And none of this catches you by surprise. You told us in your word that this is what we can expect as the days draw near to the end. But Lord, we pray, may we be found among the faithful. May we continue to worship you, to hold to you, no matter what this world throws against us. Father, as we see Jesus in that passage in Luke, so faithful, 
as he hung there on that cross. As we see him there suffering abuse in various kinds. And yet crying out forgiveness. Demonstrating only love. Lord, may we be that same people. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's amazing, isn't it, the times when you suddenly see something from a a different angle, from a different perspective. And you see something new, something that you've never seen before, or you begin to understand something in a way that's never struck you before, in a different kind of way. I mean, I'm as far from being observant as you can possibly get, but there have even been times, maybe times when I've been driving along the road that I've travelled along many times before, when suddenly, maybe because I've looked at things from a different angle, maybe because for once I've actually fully woken up, but suddenly I see something, maybe a feature in the surrounding landscape, in the surrounding scenery that I've never seen before. I usually ask Elaine, is that something new? And she says it's been there for 20 years or something like that. And I, you know, I've had something of the same kind of thing happen with favourite books that I've, I've reread, the, the discovery of a slightly different plot twist, a story that I've known so well. And certainly this has happened to me, and I'm sure to many of you here tonight, on innumerable occasions when I've been reading the Bible, I've been reading it, and new truth has struck me. I've been reading a familiar passage that I've maybe read many times, maybe studied, and I thought I understood so well, when suddenly something different has leapt out at me. And all of this really kind of came together during the, the recent trip we mentioned to the Holy Land, you know, seeing where Jesus walked in Jerusalem, seeing where he lived and worked in Galilee, This, together with the rich, unique insights of our Palestinian guide, Daoud, this has helped me to understand Jesus' life and ministry, his death and resurrection. In a deeper way, it's fleshed out this precious, most significant event in human history. So what I want to do now, tonight, is to take you... To familiar territory. To take you again to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what I'm going to try and do by means of a, a brief and simple reflection. Is help you or try and encourage you to look again at the cross. But from a slightly different angle. Now if as a, a result of that you see the cross in a slightly different way. And if then the challenge of the cross comes to you in a fresh way. If that happens, then, you know, that will more than please me in terms of what we achieve here tonight. But the way I I propose to go about this is by reminding you that there were three crosses, not one, on that first Easter. Three crosses, each one, I believe, speaking of a very different possibility for our lives. Three crosses that, although one stands out in our thinking and in human history, yet three that were so familiar in so many ways. Three crosses, three men, three bodies that were broken, three that were tortured by thirst and dirt and heat, three laid open to humiliation by that cruel, jeering crowd. But have you ever wondered 
why the authorities had Jesus crucified with these other two men. Men who here are categorized as thieves, as robbers. Maybe it was on one level, as some would say, just an accident. Just a coincidence. Maybe the other two were already in captivity and the captain of the executioner simply decided to get the whole dirty job done in a day. Or perhaps, perhaps alternatively, this was just another cruel twist of the knife on the part of the Jewish authorities. Yes, these men who'd had their position threatened, who'd had their whole understanding of life and of God challenged by Jesus, Perhaps this was just another instance of their irrational hatred breaking out. So that was this then, just another warped attempt of theirs to blacken his name. Get two thieves crucified, one on either side of him, with the hope that this later would lead tongues to wag, that people would say that they would conclude, you can always tell a man by the company he keeps. Well, you know, ultimately, we don't know why these men were crucified with Jesus. We don't know if it was by chance, a chance that is, of course, that was overruled by God and brought into his sovereign purposes and used for his glory. And similarly, we don't know if underlying this, this was just another more subtle cruelty heaped upon Jesus by his persecutors, which of course in exactly the same way was overruled and used by God. We don't know. But what we do know is that God was at work here. And what we do know is that in these three crosses lie three possibilities for us. So in the first cross, I believe we find the possibility of rebellion, of rebellion. And here, of course, we're talking of the the cross on which hung that thief who insulted and reviled Jesus in the hour of his greatest need. I wonder, though, I wonder just how this man came to this cross. Did he maybe come out of a bad home where he was ill-treated and beaten and abused in his younger days? Did he come from a home where, from his very earliest, he'd been taught to lie, steal, cheat, and fight his way even before he could walk? Or did he come out of a good home? Had he a mother and father who adored him and who'd poured their life's energies into him? who dreamt dreams about his future and who'd wanted the very best for him. So did he just then fall into bad company and eventually break their hearts? Did he choose to walk his own way in life with that way leading ultimately to this cross? We don't know that. But what we do know is the kind of man he had become. And that is a man in whom sin had run its full course. A man coarsened and hardened by sin and by evil. As William Sangster says, the great Methodist preacher of an earlier generation who's written on this passage and is the master of it, as he says here, he was no first offender. 
Not even the solemnities of death could wipe the blasphemies from his lips. He could see Jesus and hear him pray for his murderer's murderer's pardon. He could look upon the weeping women and catch the moan even of his broken-hearted mother and yet still spit out his foul aspersions. And these we, we read in, in Luke 23:39, where it says, One of the criminals who hung there insult, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. You know, people often wonder and over the years have sometimes asked me what the unforgivable sin is. What blasphemy against the Holy Spirit actually is. I would say, put it very simply, it's to continually reject God. To continuously turn from his ways, his work, his spirit, and crucially, his son. Till the time comes when God strives with you no longer. When the point comes where you could no longer recognize God, even if he stand to stand before you and look into your eyes, face to face, which of course is exactly what happened with this man. He did look into the face of God. He looked into his face at that time when the veil of his glory was opened as it had never been before in all human history. But this man couldn't see him. He didn't recognize him. Because his sin had brought him to that point of blasphemy against the Spirit. And so now at his life's end, at the moment of his greatest need, now tragically he isn't even able to receive that which he so wanted. He wasn't able to be saved in a deeper and more significant way than he could ever have imagined. That's our first cross then. The cross that speaks to us of the possibility of rebellion. The second cross, though, this cross speaks to us of the possibility of repentance. And here, of course, we're looking at the thief who we more often focus on, the more often quoted penitent thief. But similarly, in just the same way, we we don't know that much about this man. What we do know, though, is that he had done something that at that time was deemed worthy of the death sentence and the most horrible death imaginable. And what we also know is that perhaps, again, years of living in sin had not completely deadened this man's spiritual sensitivity. No, because he was still capable of recognizing a good man. And also, this man also came to recognize here that Jesus was more, much more than just a good man. At some point, this man came to realize, as he hung there on his cross, suffering a pain and agony we cannot begin to imagine, his mind misted over its anguish. At some point, he came to realize, to see that Jesus actually was who he said he was. The Messiah, the Redeemer of mankind, the Son of the living God. 
At what point did this happen? When did it happen? Well, again, we can only speculate. But, you know, I believe as this man saw Jesus crucified and then heard not the usual torrent of curses and abuse that would flow at a time like that, but rather heard those words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Or could it really be at any other time than that? And as sliding towards death, he groped here, grappled and tried to find belief. What emotion becomes uppermost? What emotion grasps control here of his heart and mind and his spirit? What emotion? Fear. Fear born of God. Fear of a sudden realization of what he and all mankind were doing at this point to God's precious son. And it's a fear that he expressed in his words to his dying companion, verse 40. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done Nothing wrong. Now, it's this kind of fear. Fear born of the realization of our sin. Fear born of an understanding of where we stand in relation to our truly holy God. It's this kind of fear that leads to repentance, to true repentance, to a turning from sin, a turning back to God. Can we doubt that this is what happened in this man's life. So it's the the emerging there. It's the beginning of a new reconciled relationship with God that leads him here to speak these words that are filled with faith-fueled hope. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So we've looked at two crosses then. One that speaks of the possibility of rebellion. The other that speaks of the possibility of repentance. There is then just one other cross to look at. And it's that cross which dominates every other. The cross of Jesus Christ. The cross that speaks, I believe, of the possibility of redemption. For what are the words of Jesus? To this man's cry. Verse 43, Jesus answered him. I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. That's the promise Jesus makes to this man. And he's got every right to make that promise. Because it's Jesus who by his death on that cross paid the penalty of our sin. It's Jesus who as he offered his sinless life to pay for our sin. So remove the barrier that our sin had raised between us and a holy God. It's Jesus, the pure, perfect Son of God, God in human form, who motivated by love, by the perfect love of God, it's Jesus who has redeemed us. It's he who's redeemed us, who's opened up the way for each and every one of us to enter into a right relationship with our God, through faith in him. But the all-important question tonight is, how are we going to respond to this cross 
of redemption. How are we going to respond to the possibility of redemption, of getting right with God, of getting into a relationship with God? Which of these available options are we this Easter day going to choose? Is it going to be rebellion? Are we going to follow that first dying thief? Are we going to continue to go our own way, to do our own thing, to give God, his son, his word, his ways, his people, no real place in our lives? I tell you, if that's the choice we make, then there's only one possible outcome. Through time, just like this man, we'll become hardened in our sin. We'll be coarsened by our sin. Of course, it's unlikely that that we'll commit a, a crime viewed by society as seriously as this man's sin was. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because as long as the forces of evil can trap us and hold us in sin far from God, as long as they can get us to make godless living our lifestyle choice, then that's all they care about. The rest doesn't matter. To like this man, we'll reach the point where we'll be unable to see the way out from this, even though it's staring us in the face. And when it gets to that point, then like him, at the end of the road, we will have to face up to the judgment of God, the verdict of God on our life. And what then should we expect at that point when we see God face to face? We have had no time for God in our lives. We who have ignored and disregarded God throughout our lives. What should we expect? Well, God, I believe will send us to that kind of fate which by our life choices we've actually expressed our desire for. God will give us what we've chosen. And that is a world from which he's totally absent. Where God is no more. He'll give us an existence where evil runs free and unrestrained by God's hand. He'll give us a world of existence from which the touch of God's love is totally missing. That's what the Bible tells us is the rightful result of rebellion, of our rebellion, our sin, our choice. That's our judgment. And that is what the Bible calls hell. That's one option. But thank God that because of Jesus Christ and his cross, there is another For we can choose the way of that second dying thief. We can choose the way of repentance. And by repentance, we can find redemption. Yes, we can choose today to face up to the fact of our sin. That as the Bible says, Romans 3.23, famous verse, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us is the way we were made and created by God. We can face up to that. And we can choose today to accept God's remedy for that sin. And that is that he sent Jesus, his only son, God in human flesh, to die for us. And if by faith we're ready today to accept that, 
If today we're ready to give our lives and to live out our lives in response to God, as an act of worship to God, because of that, if that's so, then today we can receive that promise of paradise. A promise that's every bit as sure and certain as that which that dying thief heard. And more than that, we can receive new life, life with Jesus, right now. We can receive it. We can do it right now. So those are the two options on this Easter day. Rebellion that leads to judgment and condemnation and hell or repentance that leads to redemption, that leads to salvation now and the glory of heaven to come. Two options there. So which are you going to choose? I believe there's only one real choice. And my prayer tonight is that God will open the eyes and hearts and minds of everybody here and help us to choose that which alone is right. I pray that tonight you will choose Jesus. That you will choose life, forgiveness, redemption through that cross of Jesus Christ. Let's come and pray together. Father, we just acknowledge again that on a night like tonight, the choices that stand before us are exactly the same as that stood before those, those men who are hung by the side of Jesus. We can either rebel, we can turn away, we can say we want nothing to do with Jesus, or we can see Jesus tonight for who he is. We can repent of our sin, the sin that put him onto that cross. And we can accept the forgiveness and life that you give us. Lord, help us tonight to get right with you, to find redemption through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.